This is Cohen Esri, Apartment Investors, CEAI. This is our podcast focused on apartment investing. My name is Lydia Kincaid. I'm the fund manager for CEAI. We have our president and CEO, Lee Harris, and our chief operating officer, Ryan Huffman. So today we are going to talk about how we're looking at deals now and things that might cause us to not do a deal. So some red flags that give us or put us on high alert when we're looking at deals and also maybe particular metrics that we pay especially close attention to. And we're also going to talk with you about the lay of the land um, in this market environment, what's happening out there and what's causing us to make some of these choices. Um, Lee, maybe you can start off by sharing what's happening in the market just a little bit to give our audience some context. And Ryan, we'll go into how we look at deals. Sure. The market right now is in a somewhat of a state of seizure. Uh, not completely. There's still deals out there, but we've seen deal flow drop off dramatically. And as Ryan will tell you, uh, deals that we thought had been sold earlier this year, all of a sudden they've come back around because they fell out of bed. So uh, why is that primarily? Uh, it's the uh, interest rate situation. We have uh, a, a great deal of uncertainty in the marketplace. The Fed is not helping matters, particularly as they continue to you know, talk about further rate increases and I think that that is the, probably the number one reason. I mean, there's still strong demand for apartments from a, a consumer standpoint. So uh, that's not the issue. The, the issue is the economics are upside down right now, primarily because of interest rates. Right. Anything you want to add to that? Assessment? No, I think Lee is absolutely right. I mean, I think, you know, the interest rate volatility and I think we've talked about this on the podcast before, this is my view, which is until the Fed stabilizes its policy, and stabilize doesn't necessarily mean reverses and gets back to rent decreases, but just stops the the increases and says, all right, we're going to see where this goes. You're going to continue to see this this volatility. One of the things about debt, you know, if we talk a little bit about it, you know, if you put a deal, look at a deal today and put it under contract, you know, your closing is is somewhere between 60 and 90 days away. With the Fed raising rates each meeting, and you don't really know by what amount, it's it's hard to get dip, debt prediction out there. And so people are making assumptions, and they're certainly probably padding, but the Fed's blowing right past all the paddings. And if you stress it too far, then you know the deal doesn't work. And so you're seeing a lot of guys come back for retrades. I mean, Lee, you've seen that on on some of the deals aren't that are not CEAI, where almost every deal is getting getting an ask, and some guys will play ball, and if they don't have to, they're just going to say no. Um, and so you are seeing deals circle back, um, sometimes three, four months after we thought they were been awarded and gone. Uh, we just had one this week. I was telling Lee earlier that came back that I think we looked at four months ago, um, and it's right back on the market again. So it definitely. Transaction volume is down quarter over quarter. I think there was a contraction of about 17%. Um, deals still are getting done. It's just, it's a it's a different landscape right now with all the uncertainty with with particularly the debt instruments. Well, I think loan assumptions there, it used to be that we got a lot of traction by being willing to do a loan assumption. A lot of buyers would not play that game because it's a pay. I mean, there's a lot of, a lot involved in, uh, assuming a loan. 
Uh, and so we would win deals, uh, sometimes at a, at a little bit of a discount because we were willing to assume the existing debt and therefore save the seller from large prepayment penalties. Uh, well, now <laughs> it's kind of flipped around and the, the assumption deals are at a premium because interest rates are typically so much lower than where it is in the marketplace. So, you know, that's that's an interesting juxtaposition. Another point I'd like to make is involving rents and rent decreases. There's a lot of hype in the media about rents decreasing. And <clears throat> I think that's a bit of a flawed uh, generalization. Uh, this may be the case in San Francisco, in LA, in New York, in Boston. But it's not the case, certainly in the Midwest, in the Southeast. Uh, we're still seeing strong year-over-year -year rent growth. And I think what happens, the media tends to uh, look at the coasts and forget about the middle of the country. And they make these assumptions based on what they're seeing in select markets and saying, oh, here we are, rents are on the decline. Ryan, you can speak to this, but uh, we're we're just not seeing in mo almost every market we're in the kind of rent decreases the media is talking about, which has an impact on on uh, the the acquisition game. Now, I to I totally agree with you, and actually, I'll I'll put a twist on that. When the, when I see a headline and I call it clickbait that says rents are declining, what they're really saying is this massive, huge rent growth is starting to come down a bit and cool off. Not necessarily that rents are in reverse. Um, so, you know, if you had a market like, you know, we, we've talked about Naples that had 38% rent growth last year. Well, this year it might be 28%. And the headline says the rents are declining. Well, they're not. They're still going up. They're just not going up as, as hard and fast as they were. But I totally agree that the coasts are usually where they start their headlines, if you will. But we're just not seeing it in most markets, the demand's too high for apartments still. Um, and, you know, we've had a slowdown of construction because of supply chain issues and and massive increase in cost. I mean, it's housing is going to be at a premium for a long time, particularly apartments. I, I, I think I think so there's a, a bit of a dangerous trend, however, that has an impact on our willingness to, to, to buy apartments, and that is rent control. I mean, we're seeing, particularly in blue states, <laughs> we're seeing... Uh, a movement toward uh, some form of rent control, which is uh, it's certainly a wild card for an apartment investor to to make an acquisition and then find out two or three years into the holding period that uh, that the municipality is going to slap a rent control uh, ordinance in place. Uh, and why are they doing that? Well, obviously they they think that they being the the politicians believe that by restricting a landlord's ability to increase rents, uh, they're helping the consumer. Uh, but unfortunately, what they ignore is a couple of things. One, uh, when there's rent control, landlords tend not to take care of the property like they would otherwise. Uh, they have to cut corners. They have to cut costs. And we're seeing massive increases in insurance premiums. I mean, there are there, there's a lot of increased cost of operating apartments, but you will never hear that discussion uh, on the political front. It's always rents are going up, rents are going up, nobody can afford it, therefore we need to slap rent control in place. 
the other thing it does, certainly, and we've seen this in a number of markets, it puts a damper on increased supply. So if 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 we're a developer and we're going to build something new, we're not going to go to a market where there's rent control. We're going to go now. Is in New York City? Okay, I don't understand oh, the whole mindset of 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 real estate in New York City because they've had rent control there forever, but they also have some interesting ways in and around it. But uh, we've seen states that have uh, blanket state level. Uh, restrictions on municipalities uh, being able to impose rent control legislation. That's a healthy thing. Florida, for example, has the, has passed that legislation. You can't. You, there, but unfortunately, there are a couple of loopholes. So you've had Orlando, you've got St. Petersburg, for example, that's looking at it, trying to restrict the ability to raise rents. If we see a market uh, that we're looking at a property where there's been any whisper of rent control, we cross that right off the list. I mean, Ryan, uh, you, you probably have seen this already. In, in some of the red states, there's some of this conversation, which is just a terrible trend. Yeah, I mean, it, it, and I agree with you. It, I think the conversation that needs to be had is that you know, you're slapping a, a control on revenue without taking into account how you're going to deal with the expense side of the ledger. You know, your, your utility companies, we all are seeing it. The energy costs are going up double digits. Well, if you're in a rent control market where you can only get 5% or, or cost of living increase, you can't keep up with just basic services like utilities to service the property. And that's the part that I think economically people don't consider often when they're talking about this is how the cost of running running the building and and that's much more than the profit right let's let's talk about it if you're if you're a 5 to 7% cash on cash return on a property 95% of the cost is the debt and the cost to operate the property and that's that's really where i think rent control it, it causes major interference issues is because you can get upside down really really quickly um, if they don't take those things into consideration and we're seeing it right now with the insurance market. I mean, our insurance went up, what, Lee, 30% this year. Yeah. I'm seeing increases in the 50% range. And it's all because of things that are outside of control. I mean, the, the hurricane that went through Florida being the biggest one this year that hit that market. But you're talking about a $50 billion plus hit on the reinsurance market, and they got to make it up somewhere. And so how do you deal with that? And everybody would just say, well, just absorb it. Well, you can't. Because you're not you're not underwriting fifty percent profit margin on an apartment complex, so it's it's not an easy thing to just say absorb. That's right. That's right. So so Ryan, uh, as you underwrite deals, what would you uh, what would you say the biggest reason is for not doing a deal, or is there is there a single theme like this, or is it multiple issues? I would say it's multiple issues. I mean, I, I think, you know, where do you start with why I wouldn't do a deal? The biggest, the start is you don't like the market and particularly you don't like the sub market. So if we see things like crime in the area or crime surrounding, but maybe it's not on the property, but maybe it's around, that's going to be a red flag. If we see incomes decreasing when a one, three and five mile radius, that's a red flag. If we see the population center decreasing in the one, three, and five, that's a red flag. Or or maybe not even, I would say, decreasing, but even if that's just stable and not growing and has a history of that, 
that's going to be a red flag. You know, economically, when you're looking at the modeling, there's dozens of reasons why we would red flag a deal. Um, right now we're being, and we, we use this term, we're being a bit more hawkish, which I really would change maybe to selective about what we're d doing. We're looking at hundreds of deals, right? Last year, I think we're still in our 50 deals a week. So what that's 2,500 deals a year. Um, but our hit rate is much, much, much lower because we're really scrutinizing not only the rent increases, but are the actual value add components there? Can we get it done? Um, and you couple that with this, this environment and some of feedback from our equity. So what does that look like? Well, we have one equity partner that has a very, very big sensitivity to a cap rate interest rate inversion. Now, what does that mean? It means I'm buying at a cap rate that is lower than the interest rate that would be in position. That's hard right now because cap rates have not generally been expanding, not anywhere close to what interest rates are. So their best path is loan assumptions, which Lee, we talked about, those are now becoming the premium. So now you're going to be competing with everybody else who wants the lower lower cost of debt. They will still do deals, but they, there's a sensitivity there. We have another equity partner that no matter what you buy it at, their cap rate required at the exit is six plus. Um, and so that's hard to do because if you're buying at a four cap and you're at a 200 basis point increase, it starts to make their investment metrics not work. Uh, we have another group that is uber sensitive to the, the yield on cost. Um, yield on cost is how we measure, we call that the true cap rate. So its calculation is to take the NOI over the all-in cost um, at after the renovation is complete. So for us, that's usually year three. We're usually seeing that in the six. We were kind of 550 to six and a quarter. They have to be at plus seven and a half. And that's, a again, a, you can't find deals that we would do in, in that environment. So that usually is the question. Who's the equity and does the deal fit their mold? Um, a, another huge flag for me, and this is my personal red flag, is if I see debt and equity equal or inverted. So if we're looking at a deal and it only underwrites and sizes to 55% debt, that is a flag to me the property's overpriced. And, and it just, that's a flag. And so I flag it and we'll explore it a bit, but the chances are it's an overpriced, it's an overpriced transaction. Um, so that's a little tidbit of information. Um, so there's, and I could go on for probably 30 minutes about the dozens of things we see that we're like, eh, no. One big thing about a market is, it, as an example, is if I'm in a one horse town, and I'll use an example of a military town that, that that's the main installation. That's probably not a, a deal we're going to do because we've seen too often, and Lee, we can talk about, you know, Wichita, which is heavy, heavy aviation. And if that employer goes down or pulls out or reduces, there's nothing to fill the gap. And that's really, that that's not an investment risk we're willing to take um, as a firm because we've seen guys that have done it and, and gotten... <laughs> Built on the backside because the employer goes down and there's no backfilling. So those are some examples, but there's there's dozens of them that we would flag as so, problems. So, so Ryan, talk about one of the things, the techniques that we've used is uh, bridge, uh, do some bridge financing uh, and how that works and, and the, the hope there being that uh, we can ride the interest rates down and then put a perm in place. Uh, how, how do we do that and, and ride the, you know, as interest rates go up, if we're on a bridge, usually it's a floating rate. 
how do we protect ourselves there? Yeah, so we've done a few bridge facilities where, again, one thing I would give to the listeners is you got to be very, very selective about your bridge partner um, because there's a lot of nuances to how bridge documents are put together. The debt funds were wildly popular, um, but they had a little provision in there that basically they could sell off a B piece of your loan, $500,000, and all bets were off about what that $500,000 piece is in terms of being able to default you. So that's an example of be very careful. We've done most of our, our bridge notes with big insurance companies, so we haven't had this issue. Um, but the way we do it is we put uh, what's called a 311 structure in place. So it's a it's three-year debt interest only with two one-year extensions. So in total, you have five years. We do it that way because we underwrite for a five-year hold. So while we do program a refinance in there, we don't have to refi the property for the hold period if we didn't want to or if the rates moved against us. So that's a hedge mechanism that that we put in place to manage that risk. Um, in terms of rates, it is a floating rate. Um, you are going to purchase a cap on that. So you have to go out to an independent party and purchase the cap on the rate. Um, depending on how long the cap is and how much money you want to spend, when rates were really, really low, um, you know, you'd buy a two-year cap once they started escalating. Buying a two, a three-year cap got so unbelievably expensive. When I say that, a three-year cap on our last, a two-year cap on our last deal cost us six hundred thousand dollars to buy the cap. If I added another year, it was going to double to like a million two or a million three to purchase the cap. So, you know, it's one of those situations where you just have to really understand your debt instrument, and your debt partner. Um, and, and try to hedge any of those accelerating risks. So right now, the loans we have in place, from a good thing, if the rates remain stubbornly high, we could still simply write out that loan till the end of the hold period and then execute a sale. Um, or recapitalize it in year five and put permanent debt on place or look at another bridge facility if we need to. So there's a number of strategic moves we've made if using that bridge facility money. <laughs> well, and, and Dave, there's a whole array of pricing structures in the money versus out of the money in the money cap would be extremely expensive right now mm -hmm. uh in the money being and i don't know what the, the the sensitivity is but if you're trying to buy a cap within what 100 basis points of of where the rates are today that's probably in the money if you're 250 300 basis points uh higher that's out of the money and that's going to be cheaper uh but when you underwrite, you have to underwrite the deal, not at today's interest rate, but what the cap is. And I don't know any investor or any equity player that will allow you to underwrite today's interest rate with the volatility of the marketplace. So, correct. Well, I think as a testament to the way that we look at deals and the conservative nature that we do that, I mean, we've only originated and closed one that's calendar year. Um, so I, I think that our investors have certainly appreciated that as well, Ryan, the effort that you and your team put into the underwriting process and even where we spend our time looking at deals. Um, Ryan, if you had to take an estimate looking forward, um, you know, based on what just happened this week with the Fed, I mean, do you expect us to do more deals next year, maybe more of the same or still too soon to tell? So my forecast for next year would be anywhere between three and six, and that may sound like a, a wide range. I think the first two quarters of the year are going to be incredibly slow, um, and I think you're going to see that 
maybe from a total volume standpoint in this industry, not necessarily just Cohen Esri itself, um, because we really don't know, other than the Fed has signaled more rate hikes are coming, and they're not going to start cooling it until 2024. So, like I said, until their monetary policy stabilizes, you have a lot of seizure going on, and a lot of capital has gone to the sidelines and just put their pencils down and said, we're not doing anything until this gets it's at least normal and we can see the, the sky for the clouds that are in there. But um, I think Q1 and Q2 are going to be slow. I think you'll see some pickup and maybe some calming in Q3. Um, it'll be interesting in a minute because I'm going to have Lee give his perspective. But, you know, I think three to six deals is doable next year. If if the Fed cools quicker, then we could see more in that upper range of my forecast. But if they don't and they kind of keep the, the feet on the brake, so to speak, I think it's going to be, I think that we're just going to have to remain very, very vigilant on that, on transaction side. Yeah, I would, I would echo that. I think that uh, uh, this uncertainty is, the volatility is the worst thing. Uh, if, if, if there's some level of certainty, people can adapt. But with the level of uncertainty we have right now in this maniacal, uh, idiotic uh, Fed uh, philosophy right now, and I've, you've heard me rant about it before, but they're using 20th century monetary techniques to deal with the 21st century problem a lot of which is supply chain based on COVID, and they're just completely ignoring that, and their 2% target, again, I'm not sure what the the logic is to, to fixating on a 2% target, uh, but they're all over the place here, and uh, that level of volatility is just, just going to, it's very difficult for the marketplace. I will say that... <clears throat> In, in our fund, uh, our very first co-investment fund, Fund 23, uh, I think, Liddy, we sold eight deals, eight or nine deals, something like that. We have a, uh, a weighted internal rate of return right at 20%. Right. And we are not going to do deals because we have to do deals. We need to protect our investors' returns. Uh and we have not sold anything out of Fund 24, and Fund 25 is a relatively new fund. It's way too early. Uh, and that's the, the fund where we, we bought our first property for this year, uh, our only property this year. Uh, but uh, maintaining these returns over the long haul is just critically important. And <clears throat> so there are sponsors out there that do deals just so they could say they do deals and they're generating fees Unfortunately, our organization is diversified enough that from a revenue standpoint, we don't have to do that. And so Ryan's absolutely right. We're very conservative, very selective. And uh, I think a three three deal, maybe a four, five, six deal year in 2023 is possible. But uh, we are not going to do a deal just to do a deal. Uh, again, it's got to have the right kind of return profile. Now, are we going to be able to continue to generate 20% returns? It's hard to see how, but uh, stranger things have happened, and uh, the a lot of it's market-driven. Some of it's alpha-driven. I mean, we like to think that uh, our strategic aspects of, of investment produce some alpha for our investors, but if, the, if, if, if supply is constrained and if rents continue to, to grow, uh, and and there's demand for apartments, 
again, once this this cycle uh, runs its course, we expect to see continued deal flow and and lower cap rates. And uh, if we we have a property that uh, that has a loan that could be assumed, and we're getting a whisper price from a broker, we may sell it next year. We're getting a whisper price that's just bonkers. I mean, it's a lot greater than what we had projected uh, when we underwrote the deal in the first place. That still could happen out there. So we'll take some chips off the table uh, when it makes sense to do it as a as a seller, but we're going to be real careful as a buyer. Well, Lee, I think that's a great summary. Um, thank you both, as always, for your insights today. Thanks, everyone, for listening.